The title of this evening's talk is The Liberating Embrace of Impermanence. And beginning with some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was the leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s, what is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from the wandering Japanese monk, Ryokan. Our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer Adam Frank, who very recently said this, From birth to the unknown, from birth to the unknown moments of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem. It might even be the problem, he says. <laughs> a Tibetan monk told me about the place where he grew up in a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches. And of course there's no electricity and or no gas for light, for warmth, and cooking. So for these necessities of life, in this part of the world, a fire is necessary. To start a fire without matches new each day uh, is quite a project. It takes uh, time. So the people in this area never let their fires go completely out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with ashes so that in the morning, there's at least a a glowing coal to start their day. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night, they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. Also, when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they've finished, really finished. So every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing and living with 
Impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts, nothing stays the same. So, paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. And the word in Pali is anicca. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to awakening, a path to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha-to-be, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that's now known as Nepal, and seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were the king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. At Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would either grow up to be an exceptionally wise ruler, or he, if, uh, he would become a renunciate, a great spiritual, and a great spiritual teacher, if he encountered great suffering. Well, his parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, they set about to protect him from encountering great suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that wasn't from Benares. My turban was silk of silk from Benares, as were my tunic and my lower garments and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. But all of this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own um, and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend Chana, the chariot driver, to take him on a ride through town. Well, his father heard of this and ordered everything and everyone that might 
cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But as we know, it's just not at all possible to have this kind of control over life. Not long after Chana and Siddhartha were beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking down the road with a lot of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. He had never seen anything quite like this before. And he asked Chana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend replied, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick, your parents will get sick, I'll get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha had been so protected, it said, that he had never seen a person quite this sick before. And he was very disturbed by the sight, and he wanted to go home and spent a very restless night that night, but wanted to go out again the next day. And so down the road went Chana and Siddhartha. And not very far along, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very, very slowly, bent over with a cane and very dry, wrinkled skin and thin, wispy, gray hair. And he'd never seen anyone like this before. What's the matter with this person, he said. And Chana responded, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All of your friends will get old. Well, again, young Siddhartha was disturbed, wanted to go home. And he spent another quite restless night that night. But he wanted to go out again the next morning. And so they did. As they were getting a little bit closer to the village, Siddhartha saw a group of people all dressed in white, And they were crying and they were wailing and carrying a plank above their heads with something on it. And it was covered with a cloth. And he asked Chana, what's this? What's going on here and what is it that they're carrying? And Chana responded, this is a funeral procession and they're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I'll die, you'll die, your parents will die. Your friends, everyone. Well, again, this was disturbing to this young Siddhartha. And he said, enough for today. Let's go home. Well, that night he barely slept. But he wanted to go out again the next day. And not long after they were riding in the chariot towards the village, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth. He was walking down the road, and he was walking with a lightness and an ease and a a flow, a grace about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that? And Chana said, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, let's go home. This is enough. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development, 
into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, these sights that he saw, which are called the four heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, death, and a truth-seeking person, a, a yogi, they struck him very deeply, struck him profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these messengers. And he found himself interested, very interested, and powerfully drawn towards what the fourth messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again, from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of these, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted oblivious to himself that she or he is too subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that wouldn't be fitting for me. And he goes on, as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, old age, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication, said the Buddha. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, and intoxication with life. And he went on to say, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life, as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentary nature of all appearances. The powerful, direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. As Sky mentioned in her Dhamma talk on Saturday evening. 
the seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And some more words from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form, every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within. None of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. I received a postcard from a friend that had a beautiful photograph on the front side. Some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photo was a very pleasant experience. And then I turned the card over, and this was the explanation on the back of the postcard. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So I turned the card back over to the photo side and saw with a different eye. And yet, still, with the pleasurable feeling of viewing a beautiful photo. The places that we live in often appear and feel as though they've been uh, the way they have been forever, the way they are now. And our attitude and our actions often reflect this. I taught the Dhamma in Israel every few years for a period of about 10 years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. And at one point when I was there, I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built of rock and built on rock, it's called Jerusalem Stone, has been destroyed and been rebuilt 13 times over the centuries.
With all the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times when I've looked up into the sky to um, find stars and various star formations that are familiar, kind of like meeting and seeing old friends, no matter where you are. And I found this uh, article in the newspaper. It's called, Andromeda is Coming. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy. But you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of the Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s-era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, he went on, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness this from somewhere else in the galaxy. For most of us, the word form implies a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world can't really be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant incessant activity. And most of the time, we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. And I think actually, even more of the time, we forget it or we're constantly trying to distract ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, if we tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then Inevitably, we then have to come and we have to face maybe disappointment or anger or judgment or grief or sadness. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And in fact, we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. 
Much of the time we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is or continue as we know it or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we feel like we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and as we begin to see and know more and more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. A good question you might ask yourself now and then. How often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions and sometimes misinformation and varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to all of it quite tightly? As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experience of body, mind, and heart through our practice, we begin to directly touch, to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seeming substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute, micro-changes in sensation to the seeming substantiality of thoughts as they fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan teaching that says, all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I'm told is true about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research um, on matter and, and its uh, components and breaking it all down and finding nothing substantial. And it's said that at that point, uh, this physicist went a little bit crazy. And he started wearing these huge, very heavily padded slippers just in case he might fall through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without Anicca, there would be no life. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, if there is no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. 
looked at from this perspective. Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of the constant change and cycling of life, all of life on this planet. And the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process. And not getting caught, not getting caught up, not getting lost, not sinking in all the hopes and fears and the attachments and the regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume as, for instance, the new life that brings such incredible beauty and joy and delight to us each spring. And the new day, or the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. And some words from William Blake in relationship to this. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things? Our nature as nature. There are many, many doors for us in our practice, in our life. It's said that there are 84,000 dhamma doors. So a very practical example related to our meditation practice. You've been sitting for an hour. A degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility has developed. And it is being known. And then the thought coming through. Oh, this is good, really good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe more. And then strong bodily pain sensations in the legs start up. And maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, to your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain or put up with it, or tough it out, or find a way to get rid of it, or maybe try to ignore it. Or maybe even somehow pretend that it's not there. So that you can meet your preference, your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing. Something solid, substantial, a concept and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do. The set idea that you think will lead to your awakening. In this case, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind, meaning a mind not made up. A mind without any preferences, without an agenda. And maybe even without the concept of pain. 
You might simply, directly, and intimately connect with just what is. Seeing all the various sensations occurring in your leg and notice them changing and moving. Recognizing that, in fact, this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with. Seeing, sensing, and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout and blossom. The Dharma door, the mirror of the changing sensations around us and within us. Many years ago now, I was sitting a three-month retreat at IMS. And I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. And it was during this very time of year, during the height of autumn color here in New England. And I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and various shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. And it was incredibly beautiful. I was quite immersed in this experience. And then all of a sudden, a knowing came in. Not through thought, but a deep intuitive sense that this beauty is death that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. And I cried. I cried on and off, actually, for a couple of days. Not continuously, but at times quite deeply. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say, feeling my heart breaking and at the same time elated. Though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening. An opening and a release. Soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling and circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light, rain to sunshine to cloud cover, changing sensations in the body, the movement and the changing sensations of the breath. The poet Mary Oliver writes about this in her unique and beautiful way. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. 
the fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, often quickly followed along by clinging onto the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions all of the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call our own. Call me, call it mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience, sense, and see more directly and clearly and more often that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad forms of body and mind, each with particular qualities and flavors and textures that are constantly changing in themselves on both a gross and a very subtle level. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to hold on to what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life, begins to soften as we open our hands and heart. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being in and with life as it is, begins to relax and open and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more and more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. When a particular Dhamma student in New Mexico began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, 
as he, expre- as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never, as he said, never went just as he planned it. He also began to see and accept that his body was no different than the day. He recognized that this, too, was simply unfolding, undoing, according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview with him one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. (laughs) Because in his words, in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion. Primarily quite a stance uh, of irritation and anger at taking an offensive stance towards things, people, and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was actually coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally, people ask me, as you may sometimes ask yourself or others who practice, why do you practice? At one point when I was asked uh, this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, that if the conditions allow, that I have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be a very extraordinary moment. But actually, I don't know how it'll be, because it hasn't happened, but I do know it'll just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply to any moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring in the body, in the heart, and the mind. A moment like any moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way. What's called beginner's mind, the don't know mind. 
a moment, in fact, that has never before been experienced. So in the overall perspective of practice, I could say I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for this moment. But over the years, the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity. The delusion of a separate, solid, static me. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support what's called selfing. And letting go and relinquishing this again and again and again. One way that this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, actually millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath to breath to breath. And in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, I, you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more as just process. Beginning, changing, and ending. Again and again and again. Every minute, every second, through each sense door, if we're really attentive. The acceptance of change and the acceptance of the forming and unforming of the birth and the death is really, truly the acceptance of life. All the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want and what we think we need. Our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right in any given moment. These too can change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed at times. As we pay closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience, or vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very, very quickly move into likes and dislikes. And then, rapidly move into seeming needs or strong rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily, momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned 
states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are sometimes, which not all, which are always themselves also changing moment to moment to moment. States of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, often feeling so solid and that seems so right and absolute. Anger is a very powerful, energetic, passionate energy. With the clear attention into anger, seeing, knowing, and letting go of self-identification, letting go of self-referencing, my anger, my righteous anger, letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality inherent in anger, meaning pulling out the thread of self, we can then clearly see what's actually taking place on all sides from all perspectives. There's clear presence, an immediate connection, with the possibility of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom out of which then can spring appropriate, compassionate energy, if appropriate and necessary. As we learn to receive experience with more clarity and ease, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. We begin to see that we are, to whatever degree, also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness, acted out of painful states, uh, painful actions that have happened, painful experiences, or we could say more accurately reacted out of old, conditioned, habitual states of suffering. We've done it many times ourselves, and we recognize that and acknowledge it. And so we change. We then begin to meet ourself as well as others with a more open-hearted clarity and more and more compassion. The 13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence, and these are his words. We do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that may include one's enemy. Probably most of us here at times have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her 80s and her 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing 
next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point uh, when we were doing this, uh, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to me. And once, when she was 91, and we were doing this, standing in front of the mirror together, she said, I look older than everybody else in the whole world. (laughs) And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, she said, it's so strange. Is it strange? I mean, is it really strange? Stranger than what? (laughs) It's just life doing its thing. Life being (laughs) lifey. And a poem about this from an Israeli poet named Rachel Chalfi. She calls it such tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom. Not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time? Just really focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. Just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Once in a long retreat that I was sitting um, outside observing grasses each day in late fall, about this time of year, noticing that the uh, grass was losing its moisture, that it was drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over. And I was very acutely aware of this during this time in the retreat. Are we really any different than this? What, what's the Dhamma of grass?
no matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out. Our hair loses its color. Our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there's nothing that we can do about it. And another poem by Liselle Mueller. She calls it Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. (laughs) I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is almost like a secret. With everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really truly inclined towards freedom, we'll have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially, about change, the macro and micro cycling of life, and that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated out from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident, and my friend was killed. It was really quite amazing. One minute she was alive and she was driving the car, and we'd had these three wonderful days together. And the next moment, she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. Myself with just a few scrapes and bruises on my legs. And I was washing her dying body with water. And then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. Not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every minute 
actually I think I thought every second because now I knew that life could end in a second and of course I've forgotten my resolve many times but I've also remembered it many times this experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was really a very big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist teachings and practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I didn't think or word it in that way. And it's been interesting to see how this resolve to live every moment fully has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has then allowed me to be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, This letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you here know, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice, either by a conscious choice, a decision made between this or between that, or simply through being present with a clear, mindful attention and responding in whatever ways are healthiest and most appropriate, both for oneself and in relationship to others, which at times may result in letting go or renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly including recognizing and letting go of some of one's attachments, which actually doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us, but rather giving us the possibility of relating to them in what might be a new way. There's a very beautiful Native American teaching that speaks of this, called Autumn. It's from a Cherokee Feast of Days. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards the understanding of the cause of suffering. Very surely knowing the momentariness of all appearances, 
opens the door of insight into the conditional, selfless, empty nature of all things, all phenomena. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in actuality, although change may be very difficult at times, and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and as we get to know it more and more deeply, Anicca can really be a profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. And we also may come to realize that on one level, it's really, truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare. No change, no life. In 1985, my house burned down to the ground. Uh, No one was there when it happened. My three adult children and I were uh, visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at that time. A few days after we had arrived at her house, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. Well, my first response uh, to him on the telephone was denial. I said, you're kidding. (laughs) But of course, who would uh, call someone up (laughs) 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 on Christmas, let alone? Uh, was such a joke. So after we finished our very brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried very, very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing uh, right next to me, just held me, didn't ask any questions. And then my brother and I sat down. He was visiting as well. We sat down and talked. And by the end of our two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, no things to bind me anymore. The spiritual path burned its way open for me, we could say. And as some of you know, in Asian countries, it's not unusual for people in their 50s and 60s whose family responsibilities have essentially finished to go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So, to make a long story short, I ended up going to Asia for a year and a half to two years, and I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently, and then continued uh, uh, that same way upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that's actually still unwrapping itself. And a poem uh, uh, from haiku, I mean from Basho, a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. 
And some words from Carlos Castaneda from his, Bernie, uh, his book, Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advi- advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And I'd like to read just a little bit about that lunch from one of the people who was there, a man named Michael Ventura. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or the generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow this advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command, and that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invokes something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send on on to me. And one passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art. The art of facing infinity without flinching. Not because they're filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, says Carlos. And of course, the truth of Anicca must be learned over and over and over again, every night. We don't grow in a straight line but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes all of this bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality 
we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And we begin to understand that we are intimately woven into this endlessly changing reflective web of life. And we also really truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and in others. The suffering and the anguish that's created by trying to hold on in resisting the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. About nine years ago, I took my mother uh, to live with me. I took her in to live with me in my house in Taos, New Mexico, which turned out to be the last 15 months of her life. And one early morning, at the age of 92, she died in her bed. Within a very short time after her death, as I was sitting um, very closely and uh, very attentively with her body in her bedroom, I quite clearly saw all of the tension, the accumulated tightness and anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging. I saw all of this just dissolve from her face with a transformation into my mother's face, into an exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was a very powerful teaching and inspiration for me towards deepening my practice in the very here and now, with a quite a strong sense of why wait until death for this peace and ease. Our daily practice right here in retreat and in our daily lives brings us to confront, to sense, and to receive the river of change and uncertainty the river of Anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is bound to render us more patient, more forgiving, generous and inclusive, with humor, goodwill, compassion, and wisdom. As understanding of Anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief and a lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. 
And I'd like to close the talk with uh, a poem by an Australian uh, cartoonist and poet named Michael Lunick. And he draws a cartoon with every poem that he writes. And I have to describe this little cartoon that goes with this poem. It's a line drawing of a man. And he's facing the front. His arm is outstretched. And in his hand is a frying pan. And in the frying pan is a big glob of black stuff with smoke billowing out of it. And he's looking, his head's turned to looking at it, with his eyes very wide open. And this is the poem that goes with that little cartoon. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate things, all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and to beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.